Welcome to the Babelry. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. Would it take to get you to go on stage and bear yourself to an audience of strangers? Not only that, but you'd have to make them laugh at you or with you. It's a little hard to tell sometimes. Sucks being Karen. It used to be a noun. Now I'm a verb. <laughs> Today on the Babelry, women on the comedy stage. They're places where you must tell them your name. And, you know, like Starbucks, which, okay, judge me. Yeah, judge me. No, I know you're doing it. You're not like, ah. This is your host, Suki Wessling, and that was comedian Karen Babbitt. I know some of you listening are thinking, wow, I'd love to headline at a comedy club. But most of you are probably more like me, wondering what the heck makes someone want to do that. Of course, I have the fear that no one would laugh. That's basic. But I discovered something more in the course of this conversation. I had totally misunderstood the point of comedy. As an audience member, I get it. I'm there to laugh and hopefully to walk away with a sense of discovery. I expect a good comic to know more about human nature than I do, to have novel political insights, or at least make the pedestrian bits of life more bearable for another day. Is that distasteful? <laughs> so, uh, so I, uh... I go to Starbucks and I don't want to look too desperate, right? But I realized that I had no clue about what the comic thinks her job is. When you go up on that stage, why are you there? What is the point of what you're doing? That's one of the things I learned in this wonderful conversation with two comedians, Karen Babbitt and Leah Rogers. There are other things that I learned, but you'll have to wait. It's all about timing, right? This is Karen Babbitt doing a podcast with two of my faves, Suki. Wesling and Leah Rogers doing one of my favorite things, talking to everybody about stuff. At the moment, I'm running a film studio, which is vocational in nature, and it trains developmentally disabled adults, all aspects of filmmaking. And then at nighttime, I'm a stand-up comic. This is Leah Rogers. I am co-founder and a co-producer at Cooper Cogburn Presents. They, we produce comedy shows, and we donate proceeds to different charities. Um, by day, I'm a consultant and a mom, and by night, I definitely sling jokes and dive bars. One of the things that women writers don't have to bring to work if they don't want to is their body. In fact, I could alter my voice, and here I am, podcasting as a man. But women comics are up there in their bodies asking audiences to accept the whole package. Comics both have to fight against the assumptions people make associated with their body type, but they can also use it. Karen has returned to the stage as a mature woman with a new view of her younger self. I have a lot of things to say about comedy and women's body. First of all, I was doing a lot of comedy in the 80s. I was at the comedy store every night and did a bit of TV, traveled around the country. 
And at that time, the pressure was that I had a certain appearance, which some said was attractive, and it didn't match being funny. And that created a lot of issues in my life. But now you hear so many women of a certain age complain about being invisible when they're older. And I'm having the time of my life with this aging androgyny. I'm just stoked. I have no concern and I can't imagine people sexualizing me unless they're a fetishist, in which case (laughs) I hope you're having a really good time. Um, But I'm just enjoying the heck out of being up there and being nonspecific. I had a man come up to me when I was much younger and he said, you have a, you're, you're as funny as a real comedian. I mean, a guy. And, and then he said, um, yeah, you have the kind of act that anybody could steal, which turned out being true. Um, but I enjoy the heck out of it. And it's so funny that you mentioned body because I was a physical comic back then and I'm still very much a physical comic and there's a lot of warming up and maintenance that has to be done to be able to use the entire instrument. So in a way that is not genderized at all, not to make light of anyone with a disability, but I think comedians really have a thing, something like Tourette's. It's a blurt that happens when you construct a joke, at least it happens for me, and a punchline bursts out and you just say it without consciousness and you pay a lot of prices for it. And here's Leah, who, like me, gets the C word a lot. And by that, I mean cute. You know, I get told a lot that I'm cute. You're so cute. You're, you're five feet tall, and you're just little and cute. Um, and I think it, I have I do, like Karen said, there is some mental gymnastics, like there is a, a, I don't know, um, I have a system of getting into the mood where when I walk on stage, I'm not cute. I'm not even Leah Rogers who married Mr. Rogers. (laughs) (laughs) You did marry Mr. Rogers. Oh my goodness. I married Mr. Rogers and he is the nicest person in the world. And our world is very nice. (laughs) And when I walk on stage, I am LJ. And that is a slightly true. I mean, it's all me, but I think that, that is the Tourette's that Karen talks about. That is the, this is coming out of my mouth and it's not going to be cute. And you're going to feel some kind of way about it. And that's not my business. I, I'm there to command the joke, the room, and to tell you this is funny. And, um, and I definitely um have had people come up to me after a show and tell me that they didn't like something I said or uh I had one lady tell me I was a really bad mom <laughs> because I acted out a a very dramatized version of me in the front seat of my first kid driving a car and I was a lot of like whoa whoa, whoa. <laughs> as far as how people 
um, how I perceive myself my whole life. I, I'm a five foot tall girl from a very big family and a very like raised by a single Mexican mom. I thought I was six foot tall, dude. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I did not know I couldn't do things or shouldn't do things. So this is just my body and yeah, I don't think of it like that, but I do know the, the response that I get is it's so cute and you talk melodically and you're very kind. And then I married Mr. Rogers and it's all very sweet. (laughs) They, right. So our conversations nowadays, we revolve around things like what's the difference between inbred and purebred? It's probably not a coincidence that these two comics didn't have what you'd call typical gender role enforcement as children. Do we have to have this conversation on the way to a family (laughs) Here's Leah talking about her single mom who raised 10 kids. I mean, I just think she was busy working three jobs that she wasn't really um, there trying to like force that on us. It was like, you do what has to be done. Um, Simultaneously, yeah, the first time I rolled up to her house in a dress and like wedge shoes, she's like, where's your slip and nylons? Like, (laughs) (laughs) like, this is not appropriate. And I'm like, yeah, okay. (laughs) I mean, she was widowed very young. She had 10 kids Oof. and she worked a lot of jobs. <laughs> so she just wasn't there. So my role models were, I mean, honestly, my brothers. And so like I didn't have weird body issues because the message I got from them is look how tough you are. Look what you can do. You can keep up with us. You're the fastest kid in school. Like, it wasn't, this is how you're supposed to look. It was, look how capable you are. Inbred is you're making out with your cousin in a trailer park. (laughs) Purebred, you're making out with your cousin, but she's the queen of England. (laughs) Comedy comes from funny stuff that happens, of course. But one of the roles of comedy is to help us integrate the awful things that happen in life. Karen's parents were Holocaust survivors, something that has clearly influenced her outlook and her humor. So it's kind of an intense story. What a surprise. But I was raised mostly by my mother and grandmother. My father got kicked out for going outside of the relationship, but he was always at work anyway. And so pretty much it was just a house of female gendered people, my mother, grandmother, sister, and I. And it was also very competitive in terms of beauty was a big commodity. I'll give you an example. When my mother had a heart attack, she she called me up. I was living across the street. Um, this is not too long ago. And I went running over there and she was crumpled and gray and sweating on her bed. And I said to her, oh God, what can, what can I do? I could hear the ambulance coming and she started to whisper to me and I, and I thought she was going to say, I don't know, I love you or it's buried in the yard or something, you know? (laughs) And she says to me, bring me my eyebrow pencil. (laughs) 
because that was her survival thing. She was a prison camp survivor. She had been in Auschwitz for years and her appearance was a lot of what saved her. And she used this appearance of hers to maintain a certain lifestyle in the Hollywood Hills. And my sister was always the one given the pink dress and I was always given the blue and I was given the blue tasks and the boyish things. And when I was in sixth grade, I got the Stingray bike and I saved up blue chip stamps for the baseball mitt. And I just was always much more comfortable being that person. And I don't even think it was gendered necessarily. I was just a rough and tumbled human being. And there was never anything delicate. I mean, they tried. They put me in Russian ballet, for God's sake. <laughs> never made it. I was in that for 11 years, and I never got my toe shoes. You know, I was just sort of this really sort of wild thing flailing around. Um, and so it's so interesting. When I was in high school, going to Fairfax High in L.A., a friend of mine started this women's lib group. It had just started. It was like 1970 or something. And they were telling me to join it. And I was like, yeah, let's do this. And I had no idea why there were women's lip groups or why anyone needed one. I had no concept of roles. And I went to this meetings and just I was an angry person. So I tried to be angry too. And it wasn't until I went to college that I was like, oh, there is an awful lot of discrimination here. This is news. Interesting. So, so it, it was for you, a, not a process of feeling it as who you are um, in your body as a child, but rather seeing it from the outside, since you didn't view yourself that way. Well, I do remember being very young and f- trying very, very hard to also be the girl in the pink dress, because that was the girl who got special treatment. But I never pulled it off. I was always the one, you know, in the pink dress. Yes, but it was ripped and I had bloody knees and a big scab on my arm from playing handball. I wonder, it just, well, I always wonder about things like this. We need to do a study of female comedians um, <laughs> and find out, you know, because because what you're doing is, in a sense, sort of thumbing your nose at, at society in a number of ways, because of course that's what comedians do to a certain extent. Um, but most male comedians are able to, you know, assume that the audience is with them. Oh, right. They're going to, right. Okay. And then, but if you're up there as a female comedian, you're, you can't necessarily make that assumption. I don't think I present as that. I, I'm pretty sure I present as recognizably insane. <laughs> and I think that's what people enjoy. Like, oh, oh yeah, I know her. Oh yeah, of course, she's the one who goes insane in the Department of Motor Vehicles. I've seen that person. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you don't feel like they um, are looking at you when you first get up there as, oh, here's a a woman comic. Oh, geez. Maybe. Maybe. But that's none of my business. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you, Karen, I think, um, I'm, I think for me, like I said, I, I can't be concerned about that. Otherwise I think I would just 
freeze and curl up in the fetal position and never leave. It's like, oh, my job here is to tell you what's funny and mm. why it's funny. And you can think whatever you want about me. Yep. But it's also my job to register why a joke didn't land. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So in comedy, it's the only profession in the world that we can get off stage and blame our failings on the on the customer. Like ah. <laughs> they were a dead audience. Like no surgeon is sitting there like he was dead when I got here. So I can't. <laughs> comedians like you can you know you'll hear them like oh it was a dead audience I couldn't get them like da 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 it's the only profession I think that they think that actually works I'm a little more analytical about it like why didn't that work like where did I um fail in commanding like why this is funny um so I can give you a quick example um I have three adult kids. They all played football in high school. I sat in those bleachers for seven straight years, <laughs> every game. And a mom I had been through it with all seven years. I mean, numbers of years, not quite seven, but she didn't recognize me one day. And she was huh. like, which kid belongs to you? And I point him out and she kind of looks me up and down because I'm cute and he's a giant and she's like stepmom oh <laughs> and uh and i had this that Tourette's thing that's a flash of brilliance of like oh my gosh i can absolve myself of all my bad parenting mistakes yeah, yeah. Well, i'm the stepmom i tell her <laughs> nice and she's like, i don't think i've ever seen her biological his biological mom here and i was like she's a real piece of work ah. I was trying that joke on stage, but I couldn't, I wasn't able to bring the audience with me as I was threading that needle. We heard stepmom and I'm saying the biological mom's a piece of work, not understanding I'm her. Oh, oh. (laughs) same person. And they were turned off. Like it, they couldn't follow the thread of my insane thinking of like, oh, I got to be the fun stepmom and not the one sending him to therapy. <laughs> okay, this is where I realized for real that I've been missing the point. Comedy is obviously really personal. The best comedians draw on their lives and draw us into their lives, but that's just the material. When we continue, Leah and Karen will help me deconstruct their process. But first, let's hear a little bit more about what it's like to be a Karen. Not with too strung out, because so I'm waiting in line and I get to the front, and the guy's like, "May I help you?" Oh, perfect. <laughs> and I know I want something that's kind of specific because I'm Jones and right, <clears throat> but I have to act all casual because I'm Karen, and I have to just say. Oh yeah, I'll just have a house coffee, a little room for cream, and and, and of course he's like, name please, and I'm like Karen, and he's like, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. No, Karen, Karen, my name is Karen. Oh, Karen wants her coffee, <laughs> and then all the phones come out. You're listening to The Babelry, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Babelry. We're speaking with comedians Leah Rogers and Karen Babbitt about comedy, being a woman in comedy, and why we laugh. And you may have noticed that before the break, I got nicely rebuked by my guests. It turns out I had no idea what the point of comedy is. And this is really awesome, because I don't make these podcasts or write the articles I write to tell the world what I know. Uh, they ask me things like, what's the difference between explaining something and mansplaining something? And that one, I, I, it took me a second, and I was like, well... Explaining something is when you're talking to someone. I do it because just like Karen talks about her almost uncontrollable need to blurt out jokes, I have an insatiable need to find out stuff I don't know. And they're not attracted to you. (laughs) So given that I clearly have no idea what comedy is, I decided we needed to go back to basics. Leah will start by explaining what was wrong with her last joke, and Karen will explain to me, patiently, what a joke actually is. Um, I think there was too much um, dialogue. It wasn't, like, fast enough for me, like, specifically how I explained that joke. It was, um, it needed to be faster, like, Mm -hmm. um, and cutting out a lot of the words but in that moment, I was like, I get to reinvent myself as a mom. I'm the stepmom, right? I think that would have been, they would have gotten the point a, a lot more succinctly um, versus me trying to explain, I mean, even like why it was so weird this lady didn't recognize me. Like, it doesn't matter that she didn't recognize me. It was just a funny thing that mm-hmm. some mom sitting there is like, you're like, how can you be a biological mom to that giant? I mean, that's a weird thing, but that's not the joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so it starts with life, but then to become a joke, it has to be something else. It has to be something else. And I think that thinking that Tourette's of like, heck yeah, <laughs> I'm the fun stepmom. No idea where that kid's real mom is. <laughs> uh-huh. and yeah. then, oh man, that poor kid, he texts me, why does the football team keep asking me when I got a hot stepmom and I was like here's just a blank check for therapy and my my apologies (laughs) okay so a joke there's some mechanisms that people employ and I won't remember them all now because I feel under pressure (laughs) but one of them tools you use is exaggeration another tool that you use is identification. Another tool that you can use is the surprise ending, the reversal, the flip-flop of what someone expects. But then there are some of us who completely by accident and innately blurt in joke construction. It's just how we think and operate. Now, some people have the theory that that's just part of being a Jew. Jews are, Jews are often represented, you know, Jewish mothers or whatever that is, is somebody who just blurts the thing that's greatly exaggerated. Or um, there's a very famous, very off-color joke 
which I'm going to tell and you'll probably edit out if you know it's good for you. Apparently, I don't. About uh, David and Moisha are walking into the gas chamber. And David starts screaming, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And Moisha says, shh, don't make trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, you're laughing. How could you? How could you? Anyway, so... So there's there's that whole piece to it. Uh, there's a cultural piece, yes, and there's a very mechanical piece. So there have clearly been comedians who do comedy that doesn't come from anywhere deep. But Leah and Karen are doing the sort of comedy that draws on the hard stuff, what makes you angry or sad. Karen draws from her difficult childhood, even when she's not sure other people will find it funny. You know, humor is a survival mechanism, which I'm sure you guys know. And when I was a kid, it was very, very dark, as you can imagine, in my home. And very often I was the subject or the recipient of a lot of uh, rage and upset and disappointment. And I lived for the Ed Sullivan Show Sunday nights at nine in Los Angeles, because when I saw the stand-up comics on that show, that was my first exposure to that. And I learned that by being funny, I could deflect, I could avoid, if I could just find the exact right thing to say. There's also a thing where when you're trying really hard to save your skin, and you've learned that by being funny, you can deflect a terrible situation and derail it. This kind of almost subconscious connection is made where you're just scrambling for the technology of this thing that will save you. And when you land on it, it becomes kind of ingrained in you. And it just is the way that you respond to the world. And I now proudly say, and I know this is true, I have an OCD. And what it is, is I continually write punchlines in my head. Now, I can't tell you that I'm doing this because you could be coming to me saying the most tragic thing like, oh, God, I had to put my dog down. And I'm thinking down what, a flight of stairs? But I can't (laughs) say that. I can't say that. But inside, Uh I'm writing these terrible things Uh continually. And sometimes they just come out and then I lose a friendship. Karen went on to explain that holding back her blurts could help her be more authentic. So Stanislavski had this theory about uh, suppression, that the thing about uh, good acting, he would call it method acting, is you make these decisions about what you suppress and what you show. And sometimes the battle of suppression gives more authenticity than actually just letting everything out. And I think it's no secret to the people with whom I have relationships and friendships that I am suppressing a lot. It Uh looks like I have terrible gas, but I don't want to be lonely. (laughs) My face is all Uh red and I'm squirming and uh, just trying not to say. And I think I think people understand that. Um, I also think you have to have so much compassion sometimes that you just sort of put your, you know, radio station sarcasm in the background. You let it be the white noise while you really, really intentionally focus compassion on the person you're with. And for God's sakes, don't let them catch, catch you thinking what you're thinking. Um, eventually, when I get closer to people, I can admit 
that I write punchlines all the time. And then people will go, you don't do that with me, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Really? See, I'd be so flattered if you told me that you were writing punchlines about me. (laughs) Okay. Okay, go for it. (laughs) No, it's okay. But, But seriously, what you said is really interesting because having experienced you as a teacher, um, I, I met Karen when he was my, she was my son's teacher. And, um, and I would say that you just described who you were as a teacher, this deep compassion, these funny bits, but not never the funny bits that might have hurt. You know, so, so the kids knew that you were freer in how you spoke than perhaps other teachers were. Um, but they, they weren't, they did not fear that you would hurt them. Though obviously you have a very, you know, sharp wit and you could have. It's clear from what Leah says about her own childhood that her mom's absence was an important factor in her life. And now that she's a mom, it's clear that her relationship with her kids is deeply important to how she sees the world. But I wondered how Leah balances her need to make humor of her home life with her clear need to be a good mom as well. Um, so, I mean, I, I just think all kids, <laughs> it doesn't matter, my home or anybody else's are probably going to need therapy. But, um, but no, for me, I... I'm an introvert by nature, so I'm not actually um, a very chatty, like you won't, we kind of joke that um, I am a socially apt introvert and my husband is a socially inept extrovert. (laughs) And, uh, and so that was always going to make some weird kids. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but they, but we, we laugh a lot. Like we have a lot of fun. They know I'm going to say what's on my mind. Um, There are for sure things that need a little bit of time before they get discussed on stage. Um, For a time, um, like I don't really name names of who they are. So maybe if you were really in the room when stuff was going down, but with kids, the same gender it's, and they're all kind of similar, like it's anyone's guess who I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so there, there are some things, uh, some stuff, um, like just recently, um, you know, my son was like, there's no joking about this yet. I'll let you know when we can. (laughs) And he's like, okay, go write it in your notebook. (laughs) Because I think, like, oh man, I'm going to lose it. It's just so good. (laughs) Wow. Um, For sure, um, I would say my in-laws struggle a little bit more with with the comedy thing um in um and i and i'm not sure why exactly i'm not sure because it's stuff they joke about but if i don't know if they feel like i'm an outsider joking about it even though i've been in their family for many many decades (laughs) Although Leah is now Mrs. Rogers, which sounds as white bread as can be, 
She is Mexican-American, and part of her life is dealing with the intolerance of immigrants that was heightened during the Trump administration. Leah tells a joke about how her mom swam to the U.S. Yeah, swam to the U.S., but it often falls flat with audiences who don't share her experiences and understanding of culture and geography. With Trump talking about building a wall, people lost understanding of geography and they were like wait why was she swimming like what's happening <laughs> like there's a wall to cross not like the rio grande across it was weird <laughs> so that's like <laughs> had to retire because trump made us dumber <laughs> like, oh. <sighs> but for my mom like she was annoyed by that joke i could joke to her but me saying it on stage, she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, no, the immigration's not here right now, Mom. It's fine. <laughs> but even Mrs. Rogers has some lines she won't cross. So there is a little push and pull. Um, I don't, I, I mean, the most I kind of joke about my husband is that he is Mr. Rogers. And he's very, <laughs> he's a very nice and he's a very kind and I mean he'd like slap a sweater on that guy and yeah he could be Fred <laughs> <laughs> and so um that's mine though like I just kind of feel like my marriage is mine and it's not really up for public consumption I guess and yeah with friendships I think um I I explain comedy because it seemed like such a bizarre twist for me to suddenly be on stage jokes like I was the third kid reading the decline and fall of the Roman Empire (laughs) and um and I said you know it's not it's not that I want to be up here telling jokes but I feel like I need to be up here telling jokes I need to connect Mm. um, with people in this way and and like for me to say hey this experience was okay and it's okay for you Mm. and laugh about it and no really we can laugh that my mom was an illegal immigrant I can be my most authentic self when I'm on stage there you go that is the realest and truest thought that I have and even if it's an exaggeration and even if it's not completely accurate or there's a twist or a turn like that is how I'm seeing the world and how I'm connecting to it and and I hope you laugh too wow <laughs> I don't know if that's a good wow or a, which punchline did you just write Karen <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go um, all right Karen Ding, ding. Here comes the trolley. (laughs) Hi, trolley. Um, No, I just have a whole lot of respect for you. And and I think this is what we have in common, that we are our authentic selves, even though I think we couldn't be more different. We are so the same. Right. Karen Babbitt literally wrote the book on Holocaust jokes, and that's no joke. When she tells those jokes, she bumps up against the conflict between being one's authentic self on stage and bringing parts of that self that the audience might not want to laugh about. So years ago, I had a section in my act about of Holocaust humor. 
And I was challenged by um, a, a writer from the LA Times to get up and do the humor. And I did it. And it, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, nobody in the room would laugh at any of that stuff at that time. And this went night after night and really making the club owner angry, the famous Mitzi Shore, uh, also a member of the tribe. And this man wrote up uh, an article about this humor and the LA Times refused to publish it. And so he boycotted his column for two weeks. Talking about the very difficult things in your life, sometimes that only works for the teller and it doesn't work for the audience. And so one needs to make a decision about, am I, what is the function in me telling this thing? For instance, I have this joke that I have been saying, but I have to sort of tuck it in the middle of a lot of safe things. And the joke is, I'm the daughter of an Auschwitz survivor. And then the room gets very quiet and I go, yeah, she had a number on her arm. And then it gets very, very quiet. And then I go, and I called it once. <laughs> And then people start laughing. And then I say, and somebody answered. And then you pause. So Suki, what would you say? Who answers nowadays? Who answers? Oh my goodness. Um, for some reason, all I can think is, you know, a pizza parlor, something really. Oh, that's funny. Okay. I'm going to do that next time. <laughs> okay. Anyway. So what I say what I usually say is, and somebody answered, one, two, three, it was Trump. Or sometimes I will say, Kanye, you know, and, and people laugh at this thing. Finally, it's this release that allows them to be comfortable and also really enjoy that somebody's being irreverent. Mm -hmm. And then um, whatever, whatever they go through. And then I have the opportunity to be exactly what Leah said, is just being out, that whole wonderful feeling of being able to just be out and not have this secret anymore. Mm -hmm. So I wrote, <clears throat> I wrote this book, as it were, and I'm very surprised that the Holocaust Museum has a, has a link to it in their collections. It would have been nice to have gotten paid for it. But anyway. You know, this is why there are Karens. It's because you aren't willing to do it. <laughs> Somebody has to care it out. <laughs> I make it better for the rest of you. You've been listening to The Babelry and Women in Comedy. We'll be right back. I am, this is why when you're trying to get into my parking space, I have to jump out of my car and sit there in the parking space. <laughs> I do it for you. <laughs> The Babelry. We're speaking with comedians Leah Rogers and Karen Babbitt about comedy, being a woman in comedy, and why we laugh. We ended the last section on the topic of how comics approach the hard stuff, the life experiences that we might just want to sweep under the rug. As I'm experiencing something really difficult, if I try to bring it up too soon, it usually is like a lead balloon and everybody is just like, oh. So we just had a comedian um, do our show, Alex Hooper whom the day before he did our show, he was given the all clear that they, um, after 
a year of cancer treatments that they got it all. And yeah, it was incredible. And the organization that we were partnered with um, was the Women's Cancer Resource Center. And their entire goal is to make information equitable to people going through cancer. Um, and, and so it was just this incredible feeling. And he's like, I just barely opened up about like a miscarriage and people were crying in the audience. And I was like, I gotta keep going. And I think as comedians, we've all experienced that. Like there's that human connection point where it's like, yeah, this isn't funny anymore. We're just talking like people. If it's too soon, if you're still working it through, it probably, it doesn't come out very clean. It doesn't come out very smart or very polished. Okay, never mind. <sighs> yeah, so I'm um, incredibly old. You can cut my head off and just count the rings in there. I'm five at this point. I don't even know. But what about when comedy causes the hard stuff? Here's Karen on her experience as a young female comic when she was working to rise in the ranks at the same time as raising a critically ill child. Well, the best-known comedy competition, in fact, the original one, is the San Francisco International Comedy Competition. And in 1990, I bid for my second attempt to try to get into it. I was in the first one and lost the, the first round in 1980. But I tried again in 1990. And you have to understand that thousands of people sign up for this competition and submit to it. And out of that, 200 people are then considered for a field that eventually whittles down to 20 and then 10, and then you have five. And eventually I made the top five. And I was the only woman, of course, in the top five. And I came in fourth. And the person who won, I want to say he's very wonderful. He's deceased now. Um, but I didn't do it. I, I didn't mean, okay, see, there's a blurt. But anyway, um, he, <laughs> it was pretty much the more cartoon-like, the very clever, but very cartoon-like sort of presentation, the very specific presentation that was very identifiable and they were very identifiable as types. And this was a situation where by being more generic and yet because it was such a big international comedy competition, having to present uber female, if you will, with the very tight pants mm -hmm. and the V-neck shirt, it, it felt very disingenuous. And the whole thing was done for me because I was having trouble breaking into headlining gigs in the San Francisco area, the way that I was able to around the country and in Los Angeles. And I thought for sure that this was going to break the glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. And at that time I was on the Alex Bennett show quite often. I was a regular and that was the big radio show that people listened to in the morning to hear the Bay area comics. And it didn't work for me. All the rest of the fellas, the five, four fellas went on to these, to Bay Area notoriety. And I was told that that would not be the case for me because the person who managed the second most prominent 
comedy club in the Bay Area. And when I talk about headlining, I'm not talking about ego. I'm talking about earning a living Mm -hmm. so you don't have to do something else. And at that time, I had a critically ill baby and I needed to be in the Bay Area. And I was told that I would not be headlined because I did not hang out. And what they mean by hang out is they mean do the drugs, do the drinking, perhaps have sex, or just be there till the sun comes up and then go home. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, you cannot do that with a critically ill child. So here's a case where no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, you're never going to be one of the good old boys because Mm -hmm. you can't do what they do. Karen eventually had to choose between comedy and the needs of her family and her own self. She left professional comedy to mother two children and work as a teacher, using her generous humor to improve the lives of others. But the stage called her, as it always has, and recently she followed the lead of other mature women who are proclaiming their right to be their authentic selves. You had a a career that had some successes, and you talked about the glass ceiling, and you made a decision to step away. What is it like to come back to comedy after this time? Oh, I almost want to cry. Um, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done because I had to stand, start at ground zero all over again. And there's a lot of dues I paid for a lot of years to get to where I could have my name on the comedy store building, you know, lots and lots and lots of nights at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning to three people that I'm trying to tell jokes to. And they're telling me, show us your tits. Pardon me, but that, that was the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And there's this woman who came back. She was gone for 10 years. Her name is Felicia Michaels. And this is a human being who does more for people who walked away and want to come back. She has a show at the comedy store called Age Against the Machine, where she welcomes people who want to revisit that time in their life and come back. And Felicia was telling me, go to a comedy class, start over. She was so supportive and just the thought repulsed me. But I started going to the San Francisco Comedy College that is run by an old friend of mine, Curtis Matthews. I used to work there actually. And I bombed like for the first two years that I was going there, I embarrassed myself. I had this frenetic energy, but you know, Suki, I wanted to rewrite this whole failure history that I was beating myself with. I told myself, the lie that if I had just been something enough, I would have transcended it all and I would have had this ultimate success, which is ludicrous because at the time when I was doing it, that wasn't available to women unless you were self-deprecating and Roseanne Barr and all that. Mm-hmm. So I I wanted to rewrite this failure story, Suki. Um, I ended up being a high school teacher because I decided I was going to give opportunity to people who didn't have anybody in their corner who wanted someone in their corner. I was going to give to somebody else what I didn't have. And then I realized, why am I embracing this failure story? Why don't I just try to do this thing? And I did, you know, um, and I exhausted my husband who drove me a lot of nights because I don't see well in the dark. And just as I was going to give up, there's this woman named Priya Gayadeen, and she has this tour she threw together called Cougars of Comedy. 
<laughs> and she has made this decision that she was going to create opportunity for women of a certain age to get up and have outrageous voices. And she asked me to join this tour. And even though I was embarrassed, and even though I felt like I was bombing, and even though I wanted to throw up when she would ask me, come on, come on stage, be in this show. Just the fact that she worked so hard and gave this opportunity was just what I needed to get over myself and just have some faith in myself that this is who I am. This is the authenticity. I have every right to return to it and be that person regardless of ageism. And thanks to Priya, I started doing well again. And these are still the people that still support me, that give me gigs in the Bay Area. And I'm not trying to get on TV again or be a household name or any of that stuff. I just want my right. In Santa Cruz, we have DNA, um, not just like deoxyribonucleic acid, but we have this incredible man who has singularly built this comedy community that is wildly successful here in Santa Cruz. And he now has all of these rooms that operate on a weekly basis. And it's fantastic. And people come from all over the Bay Area and they endanger their lives doing Highway 17 in the middle of the night to do these wonderful gigs because of who the people in Santa Cruz are, the way that they support laughter. And I guess it's these wonderful human beings that have created opportunity for women of a certain age to just stand up there and scream. And do people do people listen? How do they re how do they react to women of a certain age? Do you do you feel like you're getting different reactions than you did when you were younger? It's none of my business. <laughs> it's just none of my business. Yeah, I just I love how you say that. You know, because you can hear in my questions my my um, self consciousness, and in your responses, you you have defeated that, and that's wonderful. You, as a comedian, know what your job is and, you know, audience be damned, it, what they are thinking is not anything you can control. Exactly. And it, in the 80s, it was absolutely what I was thinking about all of the time because I had this goal of this thing that I wanted to have happen that would make me happy. And that's no longer my goal anymore and I don't need it to make me happy. Yeah, so I don't do drugs. I don't know if anybody else here doesn't do drugs. I actually had two children without drugs. <laughs> no, I'm just doing that because obviously I enjoy pain. That was the stupidest thing I ever did twice. Because they offered me drugs. They offered me good. <laughs> no, serious, the nurse comes in like this. You having a baby? <laughs> That's cool. Here's your drugs. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, I approach comedy hoping to learn something. To laugh, certainly, but also to gain insight, and my interview with comedians Leah Rogers and Karen Babbitt didn't disappoint. I ask them why it's important for women to get up there, to share their experiences, and ask people to laugh, whether it's with them or at them. That, it turns out, doesn't matter at all. Here's Leah. And my husband was like, oh crap, I forgot to tell you. Our kids don't 
chlamydia. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wasn't that kind of trip? <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it is you being your authentic self and your authentic self matters and your experiences matter. And finding joy and spreading joy is what changes the conversations. It does give people permission to laugh about some real shit things going on. And it gives people permission to be okay with not being okay. And and I think that's regardless of a woman or a man or a they them, like it it's you being authentically you and you being there to spread joy. And I think at the end of the day, if me being a real crap mom makes, you know, a room full of <laughs> like, hey, I'm doing okay, <laughs> then I did my job. Um, if it made someone offended or upset, I felt like I did my job because you're thinking about it. And that is on the audience to recognize why did this upset me? Let me figure this out. And it's on the comedians to just continue to be um, the voice of the people and yeah. your authentic self always. I have a right. I have a right to get up and be exactly who I am. And I'd never had that right before because exactly who I am is a blurter and inappropriate and extremely emotional. And I was always getting sent to the principal's office and expelled. And I did a year in a foster home and all of these things. And when I'm a comedian, I'm expected to, and I'm supposed to be all of those things. And it is my authentic place and my right. So it is, it is my spot, you know, me too. But beyond that, let's go under the assumption. And this is where I, I hate this. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. You know, I want to just like punch somebody in the throat, but let's just say, Okay, if society permits women to be more expressive of their emotions, and in my case, somebody who maybe can use their emotions to be manipulative, even though I feel more masculine, if you will, I can turn it on if it's going to get me that free Slurpee at 7-Eleven, okay? Um, we have a responsibility right now to be that emotional person up in front of everyone, because as Leah said about being the voice, we're coming through, well, people like to say three years of abject terror, but I'm going to say that the day Trump was presumably elected, that November 8th, which happened to be my birthday, oh. the oh, the incredible grief the incredible grief and terror, the fact that now there has to be commercials on television about put a blue square on your social media account to show people you're against anti-Semitism, the fact that there have to be billboards about anti-Semitism, the fact that there are people who will physically attack a person who presents Asian, right? that now more than ever before, 
we have a responsibility to be the voice and the emotions of authenticity. And that may sound like really grandiose for some punk broad in a, in a comedy club somewhere underneath a bar in San Francisco, but I treat it as a public service. Visit babblery.com for links and information about this podcast. The Babblery is produced with support from KSQD in Santa Cruz, California.